Hello everyone, it's your friendly neighborhood editor here. I have exciting news. We are all almost ready to send you some brand new episodes. I know nothing about it just yet, other than the title tells me that a troll flies. So, I guess there's that. I will be starting on it this week, finding just the right intro and exit music to accompany this new adventure, and getting that editing underway. In the meantime, I've pulled an interview for y'all to hear for the first time, or again, from a few years ago. We had the opportunity to interview Andrew Gillis, who was working on an RPG called Girl by Moonlight. That game has gone through its playtesting and so much of all the editing phases, and is now tidying itself for final layout designs and last stages of editing. So, keep your eyes on its Evil Hat Productions page so you'll be ready to grab it when it's available. Now, due to the length of the interview, I did go ahead and split it in two. So part one this week and part two next. And then I guess we'll all find out together about that troll flying thing. Holy shit, that was like perfectly on time. I'm just really... <clears throat> Good evening, guys and gals and non-binary pals. Um, tonight, we will be doing another installation. Installation? Whatever of that D&D podcast's Improbable Interview series. And uh, tonight, we are joined by Andrew Gillis. They are right down there. Um, Hi. Before we give Andrew time to introduce themselves and their collected works and deeds, uh, I guess let's introduce ourselves so the people listening know who the hell we are. Um, I'm Aaron. I DM some of the games, and I guess I play in one or two of them. All right, I'll go. Um, hi, I'm Zach. I also DM some of the games, and I play in basically all of them at this point, which is really cutting into my free time. So, Hi, I'm Mike. I uh, GM a couple of the games and maybe play in one now, which is cool, uh, and ask questions occasionally. Yeah, so who's DMing <laughs> this interview? Um, oh, we didn't roll for initiative. Shit. It's actually, um, it's actually a three-way co-op for GMing. Oh, gosh, okay. You are. Oh, right on. Great. Uh, so you're all in a uh, studio. Uh, and there's the sound guy. He's really grumpy. Uh, his name's Herb. I attack him. He's staring at you. Through. Okay. Whoa. All right. I didn't know it was that kind of party, but all right. So, yeah, why don't you um, give us the rundown on you, and uh, then we'll begin to interrogate you mercilessly for several hours until you escape the room. <laughs> Oh, it's an escape room interview. Okay. <laughs> Great. Uh, well, y'all better be warned that I beat Mist once when I was a young child of 17. No. No one has beaten Mist. It's a lie. Mist makes, Mist makes way more sense than our escape rooms, though. So. <laughs> Damn. Okay, so I'm Andrew. I am a professional role player and game designer? Wow. Okay. Um... People pay me money sometimes to be on the internet playing role-playing games. That's the dream. Uh, I'm on such illustrious channels as Roll20 uh, and twitch.tv slash D&D and a bunch of other places. Um, I'm making a game called Girl by Moonlight that's a, about tragic magical girls. It's a Fortune in the Dark game. Uh, I'm also making some supplemental content as uh, stretch goals for Hack the Planet which is Fraser Simon's climate fiction fortune art game. Yeah. Yeah. It's the short version anyways. 
Well, um, first off, I just want to say thanks a bunch for being willing to come on and talk to us about just kind of yeah. anything at all. Yeah. I mean, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for making time out of your day for three random weirdos. <laughs> I mean, my show today was canceled, so this is like oh. a thing today. It's super chill. Nice. Um, cool. Well, I guess let's uh, start off from, from the top. Um, what made you decide to make a game about magical girls? Okay, I'm going to have to stop you there, and we're going to take a step backwards first. Because first we have to do the rant about what the fuck even is genre. <laughs> okay, there's I would appreciate some, there's that. There's some, some groundwork that I would like to lay about genre generally, and then about what Magical Girls stuff means to me and is, and then I can answer your question. So, uh, let's start by talking about genre. Um, generally, in any kind of genre fiction... The genre has like a not exactly a life cycle, but there's like a a development of it that needs to happen. So you'll have like let's take westerns as an excellent example. Um, the genesis of westerns is the theft of samurai movies from Japan to mm -hmm. Hollywood. So very notably, this is actually the history of like American samurai movie knockoffs. But you'll have your early genre examples like. I mean, a lot of spaghetti westerns fall into this category where they were just like how Yojimbo became Fistful of Dollars, for mm -hmm. example, um, or a lot of the like John Wayne westerns where uh, they're kind of, some people like to say like pure, but I would say like naive genre examples. And so you have stuff where there's like a hero who is heroic and does good things and beats bad people. And there is no examining of any of the things that happen in the thing. It just... Yeah carries on and goes about its, you know, its story arc in the most typical expected way. And then as the genre matures, you get into the like peak expression of that stuff. And then things start to get weird and you have late genre stuff that is either revisionist or really like on the outside. Uh, so things like the Unforgivens or, you know, the other kind of like darker Westerns. Um, and there's kind of more of a sense of play because a framework has been established and everyone knows what it is and what it's going to be about. And so you can actually start to flip things on their head, ask more interesting questions, like the space is defined and then you're really making the full use of it to the point where you get something like one of my favorite movies ever uh, called Tampopo, which is a Japanese noodle Western. Um, my... Uh, so there's going to be a media recommendations list from me throughout the course of this interview. This is the first thing on it. Um, it is an absolutely brilliant movie. It is about a woman who inherits her husband's ramen shop. Uh, and it's a Western, but only in the most like vague kind of formalistic okay. way. Uh, it's really actually about like food uh, and the intersection of like, different cultures food stuff with Japan because ramen it's important to remember is a fusion dish pulling on Taiwanese and Chinese kind of mainland Chinese uh, cooking traditions and a mixing of that with a bunch of Japanese traditions. So there are, there's a whole bunch of that kind of stuff going on in the movie. Um, but it's all framed as a Western. So there's this like cowboy figure 
who rolls up. He's a truck driver. He shows up at Tom Popo, the is the main character that shows up at her restaurant um, with he has gun with him, who is his friend and like co-pilot. Oh, like, Cowboy has to have a gun. Um, yeah. And so the two of them show up and they like commit to helping her make her restaurant better because she doesn't actually, she was never the like ramen chef who was her husband. And so she doesn't do a great job at it. Um, anyways, it's a totally brilliant movie, but it's just like this great example of like how fucking out there can you get and still be within a genre? Like how? Hello? Okay. Hey, no, you're still there. <laughs> My computer just decided to turn everything off. You, you, you ranted so hard, it went away. Um, but also, like, The Big Lebowski is a noir movie, is another great example of, like, mm-hmm. super outside late genre stuff, um, where it fits all the formula, but, like, it's a weird comedy about some deadbeat dude whose rug gets stolen. Like, you know, like, it might seem like it has nothing to do with it on the surface, but the form can be played with and stretched to accommodate that. So when we're talking about genre, you know, there's that whole range of possibilities. Um, and if we were to map some Magical Girl stuff then into that uh, early genre stuff, we'd be looking at, like, Sailor Moon is kind of a big classic touchstone for people. Um, and as we go later, we get into things like uh, Puella Magica Maduka, which is number two on my media recommendation list because it is it is definitely the heart and soul of Girl by Moonlight, my game that I'm designing. Um, but also stuff like Steven Universe, which should also be on your list. It's a really good Western kind of taking on of uh, the magical girl genre. And one that does kind of spoof on it a little bit in that there's like, there are the crystal gems or these cool like alien ancient warrior ladies. And then there's Steven. He's a dumpy little, like, kid. Like, he's this tiny, roly-poly kid. Um, But, of course, he is the hero of the show, and he's very heartfelt and very, like, very much in line with the genre, but in a way that is, that kind of stands out and is interesting, and that it makes a statement in putting him in there of being, like, cool, even this little boy, or he's not that little, but anyways, even this boy is also a magical um, and there's a lot of like queer content in that show that is very interesting. So, magical girl stuff. Why is it important? Why would I make a game that uses this kind of genre as a framework? Because I'm not using it in the sense of canon. Like, I'm not trying to make things map to, like, it's the Sailor Moon game or whatever. I'm not trying to make, like, a licensed magical girl yeah. game. Um, it's the idea, the kind of, like feminist core of the genre as the like even sailor moon has a lot of queer characters or like mm-hmm. gender bendy like very difficult for the western translators to handle characters sorry they're cousins um, now <laughs> right like it was it was pretty avant-garde even for its time and so the genre has consistently been pushing um the space of what kind of like heroism can look like uh, it has a focus on emotions rather than action. You know, it's from a, it's creating this tradition that values classically feminine things and makes those sources of like heroic power. So it's a, it's a power fantasy for like femme stuff, uh, which is also really important as a kind of cultural artifact um, for its time and place. So all of that to say, um, Girl by Moonlight. While it is a magical girl game, uh, it is using that to explore 
like queer identities, um, the value of like found or chosen family, uh, kind of like being good friends. The game like is structured in a way that forces you to treat each other well and be good friends. Um, and, and so it's taking this kind of generally known genre and I'm picking and choosing little bits of it because it's my, it's my take on it. Ultimately, it's my interpretation of what is interesting and matters about the genre. Um, it's also super fucking dark because it's a fortune in the dark game and it doesn't, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) it's still there. It's still in there. And also I've taken primary, my primary source, I would say is Madoka which is a really dark, um, gritty, magical girl show that problematizes a lot of the kind of things that we would normally take for granted, like where their power comes from or what it means to be this kind of heroic figure. Like it's much more of a, of a martyrdom in that show. And I found that really fascinating. Uh, it also has a lot to say about how like the world in general preys upon and benefits off of like young girls and their femininity. Uh, yeah. So I wanted to make this super like cynical revisionist magical girl game that is about like queer stuff and all of this very uh, like tra- like about trans shit and transgressive stuff in general uh, and like relationship anarchy and all these other things. There's all these inserts of like my own politics into it. Cause you know, I got, I got shit to say, and this is my medium in which to say it. I think that was one of the things that we've we've seen pop up in a few interviews is is basically people are saying, you know, regardless of your original intention, like a lot of times your personal politics are going to pop up in the games you make and the games you run and that sort of stuff. Because, I mean, it it informs a lot of how you see things. Yeah, like you can't help but have your fingerprint on it. Right. Um, And so... Yeah, in the case of this game, it's just I was just like, oh, this is my like, it's like a soapbox. Someone's just like, here, say whatever you want. <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, word, okay. Uh, and so, I'm very excited to have an opportunity to just be like, these are these are all my opinions about like both games themselves. Like, here's how you should play. Here are ways to make your game not boring. Like your you know session at the table or whatever. Here's how to avoid playing games wrong in my opinion, yeah. right? Like, there's a reason I wanted to have a really structured game um, with the distinct, like, phases. I wanted to keep things moving. I wanted to avoid a lot of the pitfalls that, and this is true of John's original design for Blades, there's just, like, all of these stupid things that people do when playing role-playing games that he and I and a lot of other people just fucking hate. And it's just, like, the game doesn't let you play them. The game doesn't let you do the stuff that sucks. It only, it forces you to do the good things in games. And then to cut like everything else out, uh, which is what I love about Blades is that it's just like, no, it just says no to you. Basically, you're like, I want to have a scene where we no, 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 no. You're you're stealing things now. You're you're scoundrels. You're stealing things. You want to do something else that comes later. It's going to cost you. <laughs> like just, that's a that's a really beautiful statement in my mind about yeah. role playing games of just like yo, just fucking make it interesting or go home like. Mm-hmm. Don't waste everyone's time with your soliloquy about how cool your character is and that their eyes are gray. Like, no one gives a shit. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I, I gotta say, being able to skip, like, the two hours of setup before your actual heist and just, like, okay, oh so we God. pull up and, oh, wait, so shit's going bad is, like, 
mm-hmm. it immediately endeared me to Blades. I mean, yeah. we've been like, what a relief, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. It's yeah, because uh, the, the the touch I always use is like that first session of D and D that everybody runs when they're like fifteen or sixteen, the first time they ever play it, and all of your teenage friends are just sitting in a tavern, like like posturing at each other. Oh God, yeah. Mind. I drink yeah, angstily and look at all of the rest of the party. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to be Strider in the corner, like smoking the pipe and not talking to anybody, and nobody's willing to be the hobbits. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There are so many bad habits that mm-hmm. are kind of endemic in the culture of gaming. Um, and the only way that we can address those is to make games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the only way you're going to communicate with all these people. <laughs> Or at least, really like, is. communicate with their play right, directly. Right, right. <coughs> have to, like, specifically so, angle yeah. mechanics for that. And then, I mean... Right. Yeah. Just Make don't, don't let them doors. play wrong. Give them mm-hmm. a box. And it's like, you gotta fit through this box. You gotta cut away everything that doesn't fit through this box. Oh, I was um, I was watching uh, the Office Hours that you were on mm-hmm. yesterday, uh, and one of the th- one of the quotes that you had that kind of really stood out to me was uh, uh, trying to be ex- exhaustingly specific and clear when writing the rules. Um, I, and that was just something that I found real interesting about. Uh, oh gosh, yeah. I mean, that's that is born of um playing games in the local kind of culture, like the Pacific Northwest gaming culture, and specifically also like Adam and a couple other folks that I play with. Adam especially is like stubbornly rules as written to the point where he will like uh-huh. he will do things that he knows are bad because the game tells him to, and he'll just be like, this is what it says to do. These are, this is the game, and if we're not doing this, we're not playing the game, is his attitude. And occasionally, that creates problems, but by and large, I think it is an appropriate attitude to approach games with. Um, and like the other reason I have these feelings is that I worked in um, like video game development as a quality analyst, which is to say I ran testing for a feature. I was like middle management in games. Uh, And I had to write fucking test scripts that were like, go to this screen, push this button to like navigate to this thing, do this, like very, very specific stuff. Um, And homebrewing the script. And had to talk to designers and be like, yo, you can't make this this way because then it creates this and these exceptions or these conflicts or is redundant with this thing. And Blah, blah, blah. There's just been so much uh, of my like life experience around games that has pushed me towards being an exacting, awful bastard, basically. <laughs> just being like the worst fucking kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like that's that's in me, and that's part of how I approach playing games. And I've discovered also writing games. Um, is that I just I just want to be a control freak and just be like you do exactly these things. This is how you play. If you do anything else, it's wrong. Don't. Here's what it is. <laughs> if you're doing it wrong, it's probably that I'm not explaining it right. Is my attitude, and that's just not actually true. Is something I've needed yeah. to realize. It's just yeah. like people are going to do it wrong, even if I write the perfect, even if I write my rules mm-hmm. perfectly. And mm-hmm. this is something we see all the time. Like I play fucking Magic: The Gathering, and that is the most exactly written game I can name. And people still fuck up playing the cards, even though they they do literally what they say, and they say mm-hmm. exactly what they mean. And people misinterpret them because they are hopeful or you know whatever <laughs> else all the time. It's just like, oh well, it would be nice for me if it were. 
I'm going to pretend it does. I'm going to read it favorably <laughs> for my, the outcome I want. And this is like very natural human behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, and like we need to account for that when we're writing rules and hedge against it as best we can and also know that it's going to come up. Yeah. Uh, so it's been difficult coming to terms with that <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, but if I could just write it better, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I feel I feel like the that's the best way to. I mean, obviously, it's the best way to maintain to to sort of generalize the, the play experience that you want somebody to get out of your game, right? Um, but all at the same time, if they don't understand the rules, if the if if the rule somehow like goes wrong on them. Right, like they don't understand it, they don't read it correctly. They don't like that. I, as a Magic: The Gathering player myself, like if I have to sit there and look at that rule, look at that card for more than a couple seconds before I play it, that experience is somehow diminished for me. And so, like, yeah, yeah. You know, it creates a barrier to play. Also, exactly, exactly. And and in Magic, it's not as big a deal because like half the game is like figuring out how this card goes with this card. And this yeah, card. that is but, the game. You know, Role-playing games, yeah. that's not the case, right? Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Exactly. Um, exactly. And so there's a, there is a poetry to it. There is that writing exercise of writes very dense language uh, really eloquently to try to, like, fit it onto the fucking sheet <laughs> in the case of, like, <laughs> special abilities for, you know, playbooks and all this kind of stuff. Uh -huh. uh, but also just to make it, like, tolerable as a thing to read. Yeah. Um, and so, like, you need to write rules cleanly and eloquently, um, as well as accurately. And you know, like, there's a lot of competing elements uh -huh. there. Uh, it's it's a lot. It's a lot of work. Um, and yeah. as someone with not a lot of like, like I'm not, I you know, I haven't, I don't have like a bachelor's degree or whatever. I'm not like a really practiced writer in the way that a lot of uh, like higher education tend to be. Um, I have had to fumble through that very clumsily uh, and figure it out um, and haven't <laughs> figured it out. <laughs> Words are hard. It, yeah, hard. there are lots yeah. of them to choose from. And how do you know you got the right ones? Yeah, I mean, even after oh, you put man. some together, even after you put some together, it's not like you know they're the right ones or the ones that you are sure you want to use. Because I remember you and, uh, yes, on the, the Office Hours episode that we've already referenced, uh, with you and Adam, uh, you two talked about sort of the voice that's in a lot of RPGs mm -hmm. and what that means to how the rules are written and how people interact with the rules and how too much of it can make people bounce off, but maybe too little doesn't engage them properly. Right, or your game comes across flat or doesn't mm -hmm. you know, carry an identity with it. Yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a tension there. Um, and... Yeah, like in terms of Girl by Moonlight, it's written pretty flatly. Uh, yeah. But my hope is that there are enough inserts of provocative text. Mostly the strategy I've chosen has been one of asking questions. Um, and so rather than have like the apocalypse world thing where you've got this like really distinct voice through all of the uh, like rules text, the names of the moves, all this kind of, it's, it's like suffused with this style. Um, instead, the thing that I have done is that most of the, most of the special abilities for characters and stuff, like they'll have at least one or two per playbook that ask questions um, of you uh -huh. as part of the, so it's like, here's a mechanical thing. Why in the fiction is that a thing? Like you tell me, you give me the style, you give me the, 
the voice, um, but that it is designed to elicit that performance out of people. So yeah. asking hopefully provocative questions or leading questions or, so I'm yeah. trying to use that kind of approach yeah. to yeah. it. Yeah. That's, that's an art form to itself. That, that yeah. sort Figuring of out the right questions to ask. Yeah. yeah has been a thing. Um, yeah. um, I don't want to, I, I keep talking. Everybody else can ask questions. It's um, kind of what an interview is for. Everybody well, yeah, but I don't, I don't want to take, I, I feel like I'm enough. I, I just have a bunch of questions. Popping no, you're good. Head. You're good. Questions are going to sweep up at the end. She's just going to wait until you're yeah. all well, asleep. And, and be like, yeah. all right, let the real interview come in. I'm having, uh, it's a machine gun shaped like a question mark. I'm like, you ready for this? Just... <laughs> uh, Zach, unfortunately, I'm going to play a card that says interrupt. Uh, so oh. real quick, I'm going to ask interrupt. So we got a question from chat that I wanted to real quick. Uh, Canadian Soy Sauce asks, That's what Fraser, do you listen to while writing, Andrew, if anything? Sorry, can we repeat? Sorry, two people talking. Go back. Um, Canadian Soy Sauce asks, what do you listen to while writing, Andrew, if anything? Oh, uh, I mean, I have my my playlists of music that I listen to. I also, like, distract myself with, like, garbage Twitch videos and stuff all the time. Like, I have, it's it's actually, honestly, a pretty bad habit. I'm most productive when I'm just listening to music. Um, and my musical taste is pretty varied, but I have developed this bad habit of like wanting to absorb too much media at once. And so I'll like be listening to music and have a Twitch stream going and be trying to write. It's not good. Um, which is part of why it was so helpful to, uh, actually stream while I was game developing because it just like forced me to be on task because there were people there watching and I was like, well, I gotta be designing this thing and I gotta be talking to like i can't be fucking around doing other stuff <laughs> not allowed uh which is yeah it was super helpful uh for someone with my particular weird kind of work ethic where occasionally i will get super jazzed about wanting to work uh and i will work for like six hours straight and get a bunch done but on other days it's just like uh-huh I don't know, it's this feeling of, like, trying to, like, thread a needle with my concentration, and I'm just constantly missing. <laughs> like, anyway, you know? like, my mind refuses to settle on a task. It just wants to slip off and skate to one side or the other. Uh, and on those days is when I, yeah, just, like, I'm like, okay, cool. I'll just surround myself with distractions and kind of stare at the wall. <laughs> I, I, as you imagine, I don't get a lot done. <laughs> I mean, you got to take... It take breaks sometimes too. It can be tough to have that, you know, kind of like work on the schedule. Like I don't know, people say yeah, like, there's a Pomodoro thing, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. You. No, like I totally feel that because I'll just be like staring blankly at a page for like two days straight, and then on the third day, like boom, there's an idea, and then it all just comes out, and I write a whole thing. I figure out a mechanic. I, you know, do whatever. So, yeah, yeah. structuring my productivity more, I think, is a goal that I have. Um, but it's a struggle kind of across my life generally. And, you know, I would, I would love for my workflow to be like publish a game every year, just like one a year, make a game. That would be ideal. That would be beautiful. So that's a pipe dream. (laughs) So, um, that streaming while working, um, not like, uh, 
like streaming yourself working can mm-hmm. be like a, a thing beneficial to you. So do you like try to like schedule, like I'm going to stream for two hours on Thursday nights or whatever. Yeah. Um, or, or do you just stream the, when the inspiration strikes you? So when I was doing that, uh, which was during the kind of like churning out stuff phase of the game, it was on a schedule. Uh, it was like once or twice a week um, at specific times I would sit down and just like, bring up chat and be like, cool, I have my list of stuff I need to finish, because it was very clear-cut at that point. It was like, here's my planned seven character playbooks, here's my planned four kind of crew books, I need to get through all of this, I need to write X amount of special abilities for them, I need to figure out some special mechanics for each individual crew, et cetera, et cetera. Like, for that phase, it, I could just work and kind of move linearly through a set of tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's when I was doing that. But now, now I'm in that weird amorphous space of testing and getting feedback and like waiting for things, and needing to schedule things and not having it's such yeah. a clear cut kind of it's just like block of marble to chip away at, as it were. Um, yeah. It's just not there anymore. Uh, and so it's a lot stranger uh, to structure my time around that. And I just don't feel confident being like, yeah, I'm going to stream every week and work on this game because sometimes there isn't anything to do and I'm just for mm-hmm. feedback to come in. Right. Yeah. Because you're not just slinging content anymore. You're, you're waiting to fit it all back together in a way that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, waiting for problems to come up so I can squash them, that kind of thing. So cool. it's, yeah, and this is a very, it's all new to me, so I'm kind of discovering what this phase of production looks like for me as I go through it, which is a special kind of hell. <laughs> right? Just like not knowing everything that you need to do. Oh, we built this bridge, but then we forgot to, oh, we didn't build a foundation for the struts that go into the water. We didn't know we needed to yet, so now we're going to have to go do that. Okay, well, we've got to take this whole bridge apart, and we're going to pour some concrete, and then we'll rebuild the bridge. Okay, we're going to get it this time. And it's like, oh, cables to suspend. Ah, oh, shit. You know, it's very much that feeling. And then halfway through, I'm like, this bridge to one place needs to be a bridge to somewhere else. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. It's a whole adventure. Uh, but it's magical. <laughs> and that's the important part. And, and there are one day. So, uh, yeah. Zach, did you still have your question in mind? Well, yeah, or? I mean, I... It, it, yeah, we'll be sort of swinging back a little bit. Uh, it goes back to the the idea of the tech of the sort of tech writing version of of game language, right? The, the precision and the the directness, um, and the idea that like you because this isn't a game about a it's not a licensed property game. It's not like a Sailor Moon game, mm-hmm. or, well, Madoka Magica game. But it is a game about a, a a genre of thing with very strong visuals and sort of very strong central themes and things that people are going to recognize. Do you feel like that's probably going to be enough to carry that voice through the game for you? Yeah, I mean, folks are going to bring a lot to it, but I don't know if it's helpful that they do. Okay. Um, there are some there's some stuff I've been kind of chewing on with regards to like how do I discourage people from bringing a bunch of baggage okay. into my game with them that has okay. nothing to do with it because what I want to encourage folks to do is to make up their own shit 
that has like always been okay. the idea. And so this is why, uh, you know, mine is a blades hack that does not include a setting. Um, there is no, the, and it's like something I go on a tiny rant about it in my playtest document as well about how the game is, uh, is incompatible with any sense, like a, a canon or authenticity. It does not. Uh-huh. It does not fit in my game for you to play that way, um, because what I see that doing is limiting people's kind of general idea space out the gate. They come with a bunch of uh-huh. preconceptions that already kind of lock them into a certain path, or even worse, one person comes in with a bunch uh-huh. of preconceptions, and a bunch yeah. of other people are like, "I've never seen a magical girl," <laughs> and then they're like, "Well, let me tell you, it's like this and this and blah blah blah," and then it's like one person's voice takes over um or they make a bunch yeah. of references that no one gets it it's actually like really destructive to the kind of fundamentals of role play which are like conversation yeah active listening mm-hmm. um people's ideas being able to carry weight on the merits yeah um you know all of those ideas about like well it has to be a certain way or having these preconceptions uh are anathema to what i view as like the core of the hobby so while I want people to be excited about the genre, I want them to be excited about authorship within it, as opposed to being yeah. fans. Okay. Um, that all being said, I, in the course of testing and talking to a lot of people that I trust, uh, come around on the idea that I do probably need to include um, some pre-generated content for the game. And so what that's going to look like now is authored this set of, like, you know, roadmaps to building your own shit. Um, and those are great for, like, campaign play and stuff like that. doing a shot, or if you just don't feel like it on a particular time, um, there's going to be for each... Uh, the crew books are all called, called series playbooks, uh, and they include setting and stuff like that. So for each series, there is going to be a world that I author a setting that i author with a set of pre-gen characters that can go in it Mm, um so there's just going to be like a bundle for each one so people can engage with it on whatever level they want and my encouragement in the text of the book for anyone that has an idea of like i really want to play like a certain kind of canon or whatever i'll be like cool here's mine this i know (laughs) will work like play this and that way it's not any one person's voice taking precedence except mine which is a voice that i trust and i'm not at the table yeah. to keep talking yeah right so right. i can never ruin their game because they'll end up remixing it and changing it anyways uh-huh. um but at yeah. least out the gate it will be free of whatever horseshit they're gonna bring it'll just be my bullshit <laughs> which yeah. i can control for yeah. uh so that's that's the new strategy uh but yeah there is there is that kind of bugbear of canon for me it's definitely something yeah. that i think about a lot and have opinions about <laughs> that's that's actually really interesting uh because that sounds that feels more and this is purely coming from like experience with basic blades right mm-hmm. um that feels almost more like a an apocalypse uh, uh, powered by the apocalypse thing where like we have a genre we're generating a world out of it instead of blades which was like this is the thing and you need to know this thing you need to know the setting so that you can like do the heists and the players can drive towards the things and all that. So that's interesting to me. Here's where I want to be able to split into two people and have these two parallel tracks of interview going because I want to 
point that I have multiple divergences from. So okay, okay. there's a bit about setting in Blades that I really want to talk about. Okay. Uh, but let's take a couple steps back. So one, uh, Go One Moonlight started as an apocalypse. Mm-hmm. I uh, and then I read Blades and was like, oh, <laughs> I see that one, John shares a lot of my opinions on stuff. Uh, two, he has already solved a bunch of problems that I solved. And three, what the fuck am I doing? And so I just <laughs> everything plays that now. Um, but I was excited to see how much the like. So there has been this perception of blade as like, yeah, like blades. You just you want to like hack the poetry layer or whatever else. Like there's a whole approach around that, which I'm not disparaging in these statements, but I was like, cool. Okay. That's like, a, that's like an obvious way to do it. What's a weird way I can do it. Or like, what's a more kind of, what are some ways that I can um, present a broader range of play, uh, which is why I've chosen to have the four series playbooks and have them each include a kind of rough, like setting building process within them. Uh, they uh-huh. each have a different tone as well, because there's a bunch of interesting stuff in Blades where John talks about like having a dial on tone based on like how consequential consequences are and things like that. Uh, I was like, yeah, that's cool. Uh, I can just do that dialing for you mm-hmm. and present you with these four different kind of tone setting, et cetera, bundles. Um, and there were like a bunch of different games that I wanted to make kind of all at once that were sufficiently close together that uh, it didn't make sense to make four different games. Okay, um, yeah. So, yeah, it, it felt very... Uh, I don't know, it didn't, it didn't feel to me that it had to be so that I could only, like, make a Blades hack and have it f- formally be, like, totally equivalent to Blades in the Dark, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Uh, Blades ultimately is still an Apocalypse World hack in a lot of ways. Yeah, it still relies yeah. on a lot of the same tech. It just has one move. And the move is when you do an action. Mm-hmm. And then there's like this, it's like a it's a big move, but that is kind of the the one move in the game. That it, but it's uh-huh. still very much an Apocalypse World style move where there's the like moder- you know, the seven to nine result. It's all kind of codified a little bit differently, but structurally it, it yeah. functions very much the same. Um, and like the way that character advances and stuff work, again, very, very similar. Uh, there are some window dressing elements that I think a lot of people um, think of as being kind of indelible from like Apocalypse World or, you know, similarly, there's stuff in Blaze that people think is kind of like fundamental to it. But I think at a sufficiently cut up and disassembled level, there are lots of things that you can remove that maybe don't don't seem intuitive as like being modular or removable. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so that's been that's been motivating a lot of my design decisions from the oh. right from the get go. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, I hate to cut in real quick. Um, we're I'm getting some audio stuff. Yeah, I was about to say I'm getting reports from some people in chat um, that the audio seems to be cutting out towards the end of sentences. So. Um, you may want to check the Discord settings and see if there's like a automatic volume gate thing that's going on or something. It's the only thing I could think of. Automatic gain control. 
That seems bad. I just want to be super loud. <laughs> I'm not time. shouting. This is my normal volume. Uh, attenuation is off. Oh, but it's attenuating me when others speak. That's not okay. I want to talk over all of you. That's, That's fair. That's, yeah. that okay. That's the general goal for this, so please. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think we have probably addressed this, hopefully. Also, this is just thresholding, in which I can't control, so yeah. sorry. I'll get I'll get real close to my mic and NPR it. Mm. Hello. Nice. Yes. yes. Welcome to the AMS, ASMR Fun Hour. Um, I'm Sarah, and I'll be here <laughs> to uh, read you some sheet music from some smooth jazz. Did you, you can you can hear the inner workings of my mouth echoing off of itself. <laughs> oh. So close to the microphone. That's a okay. Now I feel thirsty. <laughs> So, um, okay, so before we before we took that trip, which is very interesting, and I actually have some questions about, it, uh, <laughs> we we were talking. About, you said you wanted to talk about setting in blades as well. Yeah, we the, the other timeline. fork first. Yeah, the alternate yeah. timeline or answer this other thing first. Yes, it's really important to talk about setting with blades because the setting, like, you can't play blades in the dark in a different setting. It is integral to the mechanics as they exist in Blades. Um, which is to say that John didn't just make up a bunch of shit for no reason. Um, there is a lot of stuff in the game setting that feeds back into the mechanics in really productive and important ways, and that reinforces a lot of the kind of broader design choices about the kinds of stories you get, um, which... You know, it's very, very important. So stuff like, um, let's, I mean, it's, it, everything's really tightly interwoven, but let's try to break mm -hmm. it down. So important elements of the setting. You're in a world that you're in a post-apocalyptic setting where there are ghosts. Mm -hmm. And anytime uh -huh. someone dies, they make a ghost. The prevailing culture that you live in hates ghosts. <laughs> They box them out using a special magic bubble that they've made. Um, this bubble that they've made is powered by the blood of giant demonic sea monsters. It is. Uh, it also traps ghosts in, so they have special police who go find ghosts <laughs> and destroy ghosts. I mean, and this all they, sounds uh, pretty standard to me. <laughs> in a special way, so that you don't make a ghost. Yeah. And they have these cool crows that can. Every time someone dies, they know they go to it. They ring a special bell. There's all this shit that's basically like. Don't fucking kill people. Don't uh, do it. It's bad. Yeah. It's going to be bad for you. Um, oh, also, you can't escape. Because if you, if you, yeah. you can't just leave town, because you go outside, you're fucked. <laughs> also, really don't kill people, because their ghosts will haunt you. If you dispose of the body improperly, it's going to go badly for you. Like, all of this shit makes it because, like, he didn't want a game where people casually kill people. He didn't want a game where people do crimes and then run away. Right? Like, every action is so much more consequential because of the setting. And that shit all fucking ties together. Yeah. And, like, the tech in the game is all in there doing stuff. It's not just like, oh, yeah, and you can be a hacker. With, like, without giving you, like, fundamentally setting-affecting stuff to hack. It's not just like, oh, yeah, there are computers and you can, like, get into this door that's locked. It's like, no, no, there's, like, the whole city is fundamentally dependent on this weird technology to keep it functioning otherwise uh, we're just out in the deadlands like it's it's deeply integrated with its setting material in a lot of ways that are 
really, really important and deliberately made in order to reinforce certain approaches to play and certain kinds of consequences and like all of those decisions really matter. Um, and it, it makes the game sing, you know, like you can take that shit out and it can work, but like it, the game was not successful because it just worked. Like a lot of games just work. This game has like, has an artistic vision, has a, a fucking voice. It has mm-hmm. a, I don't know. It just has a clear tone. It has a, an expression. And without all of that stuff, you, you, you know, cut the game's arms and legs off. You really uh, limit how good it, it can be without that stuff. So I, I feel very strongly on this topic. And I think that if you are going to hack blades, um, you need to develop an equally integrated setting and if you're changing mechanics, you've got to reflect those mechanical changes in your setting. And those two, don't think of them as being separate. Think of them as being uh, mutually supporting, you know, like like two walls of a house. You don't just build the one wall and then you're like, cool, we built this one wall and we have a roof and then we'll build this other wall later. Like, the build the walls. You uh-huh. put the roof on it. Um, the two, yeah are interdependent and you can't just gut one and then still play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're yeah. trying to, if you're trying to make an equivalent thing, really think about how big of a job that is. Like I know that Fraser has a lot of work ahead of him uh, for hack the planet beyond just like recoloring some playbooks and stuff. He's got to make a setting and then make that setting matter and then make the playbooks engage with the parts of that setting that matter in meaningful ways that also create opportunities that also, cause like that's the other really important thing about all of the playbooks is that they all provide exceptions to the problems mm-hmm. in the setting that create opportunities for you to do crimes. Mm. And those steps, like it's real easy to miss that. It's real yeah. easy to just design a stuff where it's like, they do a cool thing. They can fly and you're like, great. Why does it matter that they can fly? Um, so very carefully selecting and editing and curating what you're on about in your game or in any fucking piece of expression is just so important. <laughs> uh, I feel like I'm just that will be on my tombstone or something. How strong <laughs> I'm just like, like fucking think about what you're doing and putting into your art and make it be there for a reason. This is equally true of stuff like politics, right? If we wanted to talk mm-hmm. about like people bringing their political voice or their personal politics into stuff without thinking like, yeah, every time you name characters a certain way or provide a list of names or, you know, make your setting a fucking European medieval analog, you're saying something. You're saying something that other people have said really loudly for a long time and such that you do it without thinking. But Mm -hmm. yeah, people got to look at those choices, really think about it. And it's hard work. You can't be lazy with this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if everyone were lazy about game design, we would just have a million different versions of D and D. It's true. I mean, we kind of, sort of, we almost do, and we already do. Is the yeah. low key shade I'm throwing? Nice. Well, well, yeah, I'll just drag that to the surface. Lazy. Yeah, um, it's fun. That's really funny that you brought that up because I can actually confirm a lot of what you said specifically about Blaze in the Dark. Um, I got a chance with these two and then our other sort of. Uh, main main uh stream group 
uh, to run a Blades game has been a while now. Um, and I'd never played it before. I sort of just got the book, opened it up, like, this is super cool. These mm-hmm. folks have played it before, but I'd never played or run it before. And so I decided I'm going to, like, try a different setting with this because this is cool, but I'm not super into it. And so I sort of threw this thing together that was, like, this, like, post-Soviet capitalist dystopia where the actual, like, currency was the souls of the workers and these things. And it worked. I mean, it was a thing that we played and we had fun with. But it definitely turned into a murder circus very quickly because I had yep. no controls on that right, that direction that of the game. Heat accumulation stuff and the like the severity of murder mattering. Like, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. It, and you know, I'm not I would I hope it did not feel when I was going on my rant no, I was calling no, no, no. you out because no, 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 no. that kind of bullshit. But yeah, like yeah, exactly. Like as you find, right? Like without these these bits that might seem purely kind of surface or purely poetry, mm-hmm. they, they're bearing some load for the game. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting in that way, which I think, like, if you look at other games kind of in its generation, like if we go back a step and look at Apocalypse World or all these other things, that stuff exists. It's maybe a little harder to parse. Um, mm-hmm. There are some notions of, like, like, oh, Vincent is, Vincent is just like, I know it doesn't make sense, but there, there are infinite bullets and gas. Just don't worry about it. <laughs> but, you know, like, those kinds of things matter. Uh, a lot more of the setting is cooked into the moves in Apocalypse World, mm-hmm. as opposed to existing in this kind yeah. of, like, broader, like, sandbox layer. Um, but there are still some of those forces there where it's like, like, there needs to be scarcity, there needs to be these other things, or the game kind of the fiction of the game falls apart. And I think that's also really important. Like you'll still be able to keep rolling dice and the mm-hmm. like the mechanical bits will seem to function, but the story that you create will just get increasingly unhinged and dumb. <laughs> like it'll just happen very quickly. It, uh, see, that's a, the, it opened with them flashbanging and then fricasseeing an entire game. So, you know, it, yeah. it got off the rails real fast. Look, some stuff I, happened, I, you know, some words were said, somebody was a demon. It, it's really hard to keep track of stuff. I mean, I love blowing things up in Blades in the Dark. It's very good fun. I do it at every opportunity I have <laughs> as a player character. And it, it's for me, it's in part because I know that it's really bad to do. <laughs> And that it's gonna like fuck us over super hard. And I'm just basically telling the GM, like, come at me. I'm gonna blow stuff up. What are you gonna do about it? <laughs> Show me just how sharp your teeth are. Cause yeah, like it should be really fucking bad. Cause if someone uh-huh. blows Okay, I mean, unless you pick your targets very carefully, I can just make a little political rant about how no one is talking about that fucking bomber in the state. Oh Jesus, right? So, like, in most cases, I feel like I would be able to say if you blow stuff up in society, like, it should matter. Uh, clearly, I'm wrong. Uh, it's really horrifying. But, like, it should fucking matter if people are exploding mm-hmm. things. And at least in our made-up world, the, that is mm-hmm. reflected. And yeah. That, so that's a good thing, I guess. Exploding um, things and people. We can, like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no. We can, we, we can make those rules okay we can we can make the rules to where society acts or reality acts the way we want it to in our games well and this is the importance of fantasies like this to be like hey yeah things can you know 
Mm-hmm. We can talk about these things in games, but yeah. sorry, that was like extremely dark and insensitive. But no, my mind no, no, no. Need that connection, and right. it's fucking horrifying that like yeah, right. yeah, blowing stuff up should matter, and we have been taught through a lot of different media sources that it just doesn't. Mm-hmm. That's this, messed up. That dovetails interestingly. Uh, Waypoint uh, has a uh, series this yes. week about about guns mm-hmm. and games. Uh, yeah. and, uh, we're super cavalier about that, and. You know, maybe we should reconsider, like consider what we're doing. And that's definitely a symptom of like where are most video games made? Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Not to like, I'm not trying to call y'all out personally or anything, but just like there's a certain culture, like a prevailing culture, um, and a lot of assumptions exist within that culture. Yeah. Let me just interview myself for a bit here and say, okay. "Girl by Moonlight" is also a way of me making a statement against all of this kind of shit. Um, because it's a game where it's actually like most of the tools you have are not fighting things. Um, and, yeah, that's cool. and it's a game where you can like talk to the monsters and for, like you can forgive them and forgiving them is equally as effective as punching them. That's um, cool. Okay. I love notably. the hell out of that. Um, that's awesome. So the, the, the actions uh, in this game are confess, forgive, uh, perceive, express, defy, empathize, conceal. Like just reading. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm kind of geeking about your game, but just reading about like the Please. way they interact with the world. How dare you? Fascinating. <laughs> and like, um, so I, I don't know when I stumbled across the rules for this. It was a while ago, but I've been kind of like uh, itching to get this on our virtual tabletop for quite some time because uh, I, it's it's tough not to just jump right into imagining where this is going with uh with any sort of a game where uh you you right up front you say that um uh the the powers of of the way that you interact with the world the tools that you're given to the players and i'm sorry that's just me being uh excited I mean, but I, please I'm, continue I'm with what you're saying i'm glad it's coming through because yeah that's the idea is that i'm i'm just like i don't give the players good tools for doing violence uh, and there's uh-huh. some instruction in there about like not being kind to them when they resort to that or pushing pushing back against it when they do. Um, because so there are a couple of reasons. One, if we want to go back to genre, is that this is a it's totally true to genre, is that in a lot of magical girl stuff, uh you you don't see the characters just fucking rolling up and punching things. It's just not it's just not what there is um, because that kind of shit exists in, in Shonen, which is to say like anime for young boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is like the main stuff that it's about. It's about like working hard and developing skills and punching things. Those are like the, if I had to do a quick list of top threes, that's kind of what that's about. Whereas uh, Shoujo, which is anime for young girls is mostly about making friends, building community and having feelings. Those are like the main three activities that people are about. Um, And so it's just like, it's just not how you go about shit in in genre. (laughs) Um, And there's a bunch of stuff about the like gender coding of those approaches, which I think is really interesting and merits exploring. And I am excited and have always been really thrilled with the results when it's like, yeah, me and a bunch of like cisgendered dudes playing this magical girl game which one of my first con games of it in fact my first con game of it was yeah like four white dudes or sorry three white dudes one uh dude of color um most of whom were like older like probably like 40 
40 years or older. Um, and I didn't really know what to expect, but they took to it. And like, because of the, the mechanisms of the game, giving them only that option, it was just like, yeah, of course. And like, they all bought in. They were great role players as well. Nice. But, but yeah, it was just like delightful to see that playing out. Um, I was just like, yep, yeah, your, your dude's describing hugging each other. <laughs> great. Uh, it's a win. We'll call that a win. It's you know, awesome. Uh, happy to encourage that kind of thing. Uh, and I think it's really important for folks, uh, especially in role-playing, to be pushed out of their comfort zones, to be given opportunities to empathize with people who are very different from them because it's an ideal place to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like, it's what the game is all about. It's all about building empathy. That's what the hobby is all about, I should say. Because um, even if you're just playing a, a like, Gary Stew self-insert in your fantasy role-playing game about murdering things... You still kind of have to practice empathy. You have to imagine what it would be like to mm-hmm. be you in a different set of circumstances. Then maybe the next time you'll imagine what it's like to be a cool, edgy dark elf in a set of different circumstances. And then, like six years down the line, you'll realize you're gay or trans or something. Um, <laughs> not to speak too much from personal experience, uh, but you know, like. I, we hear those stories a lot. You see lots of people saying that kind of stuff and it's, it's totally for real because it gives people an opportunity to uh, develop understanding outside themselves. And I think it's a desperately needed skill set, mm-hmm. particularly Absolutely. in our day and age, That's, particularly uh, in North America. It's very true to the way it worked for me. Like being able to yeah. explore, like being a female character and stuff. And I was like, Oh wait, no, wait, this is pretty good. And then, <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't actually realize it until the interview uh, with John about, you know, we, we sort of talked about um, your life and your experiences influencing the way you run games, too. And the Mega, Kane, Mega Campaign first season that I ran, um, it was like a lot of body horror stuff. And I was just kind of coming to terms with the whole, mm-hmm. hey, mm-hmm. I'm trans thing. And like, I didn't realize it until he said something. I was like, oh, huh, that's mm-hmm. that's something. <laughs> Yep, those those things we do without thinking or fully thinking through, yeah, um, can be really telling. But um, and like, yeah, like of course, right? Of course, that's the thing. Yeah, when you're like, I'm going to imagine the worst thing possible, and it's like, yeah, it's got to be born of your experience. <laughs> yeah, it makes, it makes complete sense. Your uh, your your brain spiders make the best webs. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's strong. That? That's a good one. That's strong. Um, yeah. But going back to what you were saying about, um, you know, community building, and uh, before we started the stream, you were saying uh, community building is not traditionally a a male coded sort of thing, mm-hmm. like set of labor. Yeah. yeah totally. What? I guess I have like a two parter. It's like, what can we do to, I guess, make it less not gender, you know, stigmatized or 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 stereotyped or anything, but what can we make do to make that a more appealing thing? And also, how can we make communities more, I guess, queer inclusive? So, have so I'll start with the first bit because I think it's the easier one to answer. Um, people need to. It's like there's a certain element of like if we recognize that community building is work because it fucking is. It's a lot of work. Um, Mm -hmm. we then have to look at like, how is this work valued? 
and that can come across both in terms of like how much do people get paid to do it which is to say usually nothing it's almost yeah. always volunteer based yep. um it's generally women doing it uh or like femme coded people of various types and further to all of that it is not afforded any status it is not viewed as like yeah. a thing that is like exciting or cool to be a part of it is not uh shown as being um like it we see how unrewarding it is because people do that work they are given nothing uh-huh. it is ignored they are silenced <laughs> their needs are not you know heated or you know uh they aren't given good support so basically uh if you are a dude and you see someone else doing organizing um thank them uh thank them as publicly as you can um provide you know like monetary or whatever other kinds of support you can get on board if you're if you're attending a convention or something like that don't just be like hey yeah thanks for organizing at the end um maybe get involved in advance of it uh cuz this is generally like when it when the kind of shit does come up it's usually an afterthought i see a lot of folks who do organizing they put in a ton of work. They're exhausted when the event happens, but they're there. And people are like, hey, thanks for organizing. That's cool. Pat on the back. And it's just like, that doesn't really mean very much. Like, put either your money or your time or your labor where your mouth is. Um, because a lot of people are benefiting off of these spaces that are being organized and set up and generated by people. Um, so, like, yeah, getting involved, uplifting and rewarding and supporting those who are already doing it, uh, listening to them doing what they tell you to do <laughs> be a fucking like useless stubborn baby at events who refuses to accommodate the needs of organizers oh, um, don't be a bad actor in those places like there's so much stuff that people can do and i think the most important one is to, like pay attention to the work uh acknowledge the work and then everything else will start flowing from that like when a plumber comes and fix your, fixes your plumbing you're grateful because you didn't have water and then now you have water again and like people uh, notice that kind of shit like there's there's a certain category of work that we we are trained to do a good job uh like lauding and accepting and supporting and then there's this whole other band of work that we ignore so stop ignoring it i think is the first and most important step uh-huh. um as for how to make uh spaces more queer inclusive i think having spaces be less top down is a really good start um Definitely. having lots of like flat ground level uh organizations um fixing the toxic behavior of other people and those people Definitely. being motivated to do that themselves is really important mm-hmm. queer people never want to show up and then fucking teach everyone how to be nice oh, to them so that's yep. a bunch of horseshit um i in my own life i I would rather be invisible and unacknowledged than need to teach everyone how to treat me respectfully. Having um, to pronounce my... people over the head gets real old yeah. real fast. <laughs> Fucking exhausting. And like, that's a structural problem. That's not my problem. That problem exists mm-hmm. on this enormous scale that I will, I will never solve. Like it is impossible for any one queer person or even for queer people as a, even if they all got together, the whole queer agenda were to join forces and their shady cabals and actually march into the streets <laughs> with their legions of queer soldiers. Uh, we're, a, we're a minority uh, within the kind of broader population. Yeah. Um, and so, like, we are not going to solve 
these problems because they're enormous, huge, structural. Uh, so everyone else doing a lot of that work to pave the way is what's going to make it easier. We have to do a bunch of work just to show up. Uh, and so anything that makes that bit of work easier means that we do it. Um, yeah. It'll be more worth our time because we do all that work to show up and then still go through the uh -huh. same roll of the dice that everyone else does when they show up to anything where it's like, oh, maybe you have a bad time. Maybe you have a good time. Uh, maybe no one else shows up. You know, like all those problems still exist plus this extra load of horseshit. Uh, so getting those other barriers out of the way are going to be really helpful. And I think that uh, small scale uh, organizations are a really good way. Like I would love for the community spaces um, that supported the hobby mm -hmm. uh, or featured the hobby. Um, and just like increasing the diversity of people in the spaces will mean that everyone to be on better behavior and that toxic masculinity doesn't kind of pervade in the way that it has historically yeah. within the hobby. Definitely. Um, yeah. And like, I don't know, queer people, we're out here, we're in games, like we're just doing our own games and like maybe we're not in your games uh, and maybe we prefer it that way for now uh, until y y the general you that I don't know who I'm speaking to on this topic because like y'all seem pretty cool, but like if there aren't queer people in your games, don't be like, oh, those queer people never show up to my games. Be like, figure hmm, out why. Why maybe not? Yeah. Or like if there aren't any, like we're all white, here from what i can see maybe someone's camera is doing some tricks for me but like get some people of color in your games think about how they might be barred from inclusion or might have barriers put in front of them if you are organizing an event uh advertise broadly try to bring communities in because a general diversity of people is going to make everyone feel better about being involved absolutely so that's that's my very vague floaty idea of how to solve all these problems in terms of like you know like what to do right now fuck i don't know it's hard it's a yeah. fucking hard problem to solve and um i think the most salient thing i said in all of that is that there is like this massive structural thing and uh -huh. no one of us or even all of us banded together are going to crunch that problem and fix it we need to have some giant robot that does that for us like it's just it's just hard it's just like brutal and hard and sad yeah <laughs> you know like yeah it just, it just sucks right now there's problems and we're not going to solve them in my lifetime and like i just gotta accept that and just like try your best i don't know it's dark that's yeah. why i made this really dark cynical game about all this shit like the game isn't like there's hope yay you're gonna solve it it's like unless you are literally you cannot fight these problems. That's basically oh, wow. what the game says. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it also kind of says that, like, community is magic. Mm -hmm. And, like, friendship yeah. is magic. That's that's still there, but, like, it's not a very optimistic game that I have made. I have realized. I'm looking at it, I'm like, mm, yeah, this is me. This is what I feel. Well, it's yeah. an expression, right? It's, it's, the, it's, it's your brain spiders making that web. So. Yes. Um, and, I mean, there, there are degrees of it. There's one playbook kind of hopeful kind of <laughs> one kind of yeah yeah i mean you still gotta work for it you still gotta work like, really hard but like yeah. a, th a third of a, t a total of like a third of a playbook is yeah yeah oh i just uh, i just call it how i see it you know i, to <laughs> I totally get that though like even as a like white cishet dude who's never had that sort of barrier to entry like 
there are spaces in our hobby that are super toxic and and I can't even imagine trying to walk in there as somebody who didn't look like me and present like me. Yeah, um, like you got that extra layer of armor to keep you, mm-hmm. or like cloak of invisibility. I don't know what something like that. Here. But yeah, yeah, like disguise self. Yeah, you being, being aware of stuff can be just as much of a curse though, because you can't unsee it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like I acknowledge that it's gross for it's gross for everyone. Yeah, it's just whether or not you like perceive that that is what is happening or not i i one thing that does make me hopeful that i really like and that's coming out in these interviews as we do them uh and in the hobby more broadly is that it is in some large part not universally but in some large part it is people uh with some queer presentation or uh or people who are from marginalized communities are making games now and those are going to catch on. They, in some in some cases, they already have, and so you have a bunch of cishet white dudes playing a game by somebody who is not a cishet white dude. In I mean, some way. yeah, like thank God for Avery Alder, right? Like mm-hmm. the most successful Apocalypse World hack that I can name, like probably even outshining Apocalypse World itself, is Monster Hearts, a game by a trans woman mm-hmm. about being queer teenagers. Mm-hmm. Like. Thank fucking God. <laughs> and it's amazing. Um, and and like, yeah, it stands on its merits. It is not just is nothing is nothing but just how good it is. Yeah. That got it there. So yeah. People want to see that shit, right? Like Black Panther is the yeah. fucking is making mm-hmm. hella money. Like obviously just, people want this stuff. Fuck that uh, was good. So we just need to keep giving it to them. Mm-hmm. Uh mm-hmm. and keep flooding the market with this shit until it's just super exactly. normal and boring. I would love for no one to bat an eye about a girl role-playing game. Yeah. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. I think part of that also comes back to, you know, your lived experiences like we talked about influencing the games you make because if these are people who are underrepresented in the community, it's going to be like this breath of fresh air. It's not going to be the same old cookie-cutter bullshit you play all the time. Oh, yeah. So somebody who's looking for something new and, you know, they, they get exposed to this and it's kind of like a double whammy where it's like, okay, this game is rad as shit, but also I'm kind of getting a, a small peek under the hood of like someone else's life or, you know, into their brain mm-hmm. or just see things through their eyes for just a little bit. And that's, that's kind of great. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. I mean, that's, that's super cool. Um, and I, I definitely have started approaching my, sort of game consumption, at least going out and seeking out those sorts of games for that reason. But another thing that I started doing before I started consciously doing that is walking down the aisle, like the the RPG aisle at my local place, and being like, okay, that one has orcs with guns, and that one has dudes with guns, and that one has, like, dinosaurs with guns? But what's this one over here that's, like, none of those things that I've never played before? That seems really cool. And I think there's that, that's the space that, and again, people of marginalized identities can make those sorts of games too, and do, but they also come at it from a direction that like, us cishet white dudes who've been doing this for 20 years don't think about yeah. and won't build. That experience has had a lot of time in the sun, a lot of opportunities mm-hmm. to be explored, and yeah, like, everyone's going to want to try something different, so don't feel like for any would-be designers out there don't feel like 
your experience doesn't rate um, or that your story doesn't want to be heard because fucking no white dude ever stopped thinking. <laughs> <laughs> not a single white dude has ever been like, does anybody not want to hear my bullshit? It's like, no, but it's just going to happen. <laughs> I have something to say. The world must know of it. And like, as someone who was raised to be one of those people, uh, I have the privilege Weird. of not having been taught that I need to like shut up. Mm-hmm. Time. I mean, a little bit because I don't quite conform I and mean, didn't map to being like the a, a man enough. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. it's it's a little easier for me than it is for a lot of other people. So like, it there's a breaking down of a of a lot of self imposed barriers for other folks uh, who might feel that their voices aren't going to be heard or you know that people are gonna lash out at them or whatever like it's okay it's safe come over play role playing games it's cool mm-hmm. yeah 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 um i i can i'm 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 monopolizing shut up and do it shut up and do it roll the dice right. um so <laughs> i've go, got go. a whole stack of interrupt cards i'll play at least so. awesome awesome uh so uh, going back to the stuff we were sort of talking about before we got on that uh, very important mm-hmm. tangent um about the action words that you chose for uh for your game and uh sort of what they meant to the genre. Uh the one of these settings is a giant is a is a magical girl some giant robots. Yes. How does <laughs> empathizing with a giant monster from inside a robot work? Uh so I can list an example from play. Uh, okay, great. It, it's definitely like you are correct in feeling like that one skews more towards Violence, okay. which is absolutely correct. Um, generally, uh, so there are. I'm just going to do a quick outline of what all the four of them are and like okay. how they all yeah, kind of yeah. work together. So, uh, the magical girl is in giant robots. One is on the like is the second most violent, the really okay. dark, edgy Madoka inspired one called In Darkest Night. That is like is violent. It's like okay, both emotionally and physically, like just in all ways. Um, <laughs> And it's meant to lean into that kind of stuff. Still, the characters don't necessarily have a lot of tools for it, which is mm-hmm. kind of the idea. Is just like, just yep, there's a bunch of horrible violence. That's too bad for you. <laughs> um, and similarly, for the one where you're in giant, like things are going to be inclined to fight or like stomp around and ruin things, and you're kind of doing damage control because you're not going out there to slay dragons. The dragons are coming to you, and you are uh-huh. protecting the last yeah. bastion of humanity. Um, and then we'll get to the, we'll talk about the other two later because these two are kind of the ones that matter for this particular uh, question. Um, and so, if we want to talk about how violence fits into that and how you might do nonviolent things, uh, in the most recent session of or second most recent most recent something like that. Anyways, we're doing a playtest of that playbook on actual play, uh, and. Uh, Andy, one of the players, uh, her character, while piling this big giant robot thing, did like this howl of anguish to like stall the thing, like because okay. you know, like that shit matters. And so if people jump mm-hmm. forward with like things that are emotionally driven, the mechanics support them in doing so. So she did like an okay. empathize role to be like, well, these things are probably sad too, like. They are probably like far away from home out. or in some way like in a bad spot. And in the case, this particular case, there were two uh, big like Lamasu cat monster type things. Uh, 
but they were the two of them were separated by the like barrier of the the last bastion. So one of them was stuck on the inside, and the other was stuck on the outside, and was trying to get to the other one. Was kind of the framing that I was setting up. Uh, and so I think Andy kind of picked up on some of that, uh, as well as just like stuff that was going on for her character, who was a very melancholy kind of character, um, who didn't want there to be violence or you know like didn't wouldn't isn't inclined to do like big action sequences or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so this was this was her play was to just do that, and it she like knocked it out of the park. I think she like rolled a crit or something. It was super Thanks. impactful, which was great. <laughs> Felt really nice. Yeah. Um, and then her, it was interesting as well because the the other two characters in the crew were more inclined to just like fight things, um, and to see those different approaches come in, and that one of the other two then pivoted their strategy based on the decision Andy had made. So she kind of like led from the back in that way. There was a whole interesting process that unfolded in play, um, where both the players realized that that was there was a way to do it that wasn't the way they might have, you know, tended towards based on other games and what kind of media broadly teaches us about how to solve problems. And there's a whole conversation to be had here about how in Western uh, storytelling, like what is the role of death and killing in Western storytelling? And it's like, that is the only way that we can conceptualize uh, closure for a lot of conflict. Mm-hmm. in most western storytelling is you the villain dies so in uh-huh. disney they fall off a cliff right no one like kills them but in yeah, most movies, no you, you fucking yeah. kill them you guys don't agree about something so someone has to fucking die like that's it escalates yeah. immediately there's no story where it's like yeah we didn't agree and like so okay so let's talk about black panther right okay and fucking spoiler killmonger dies at the end whoop-de-doo anyways in I can imagine a world in which it was like, he's like, yo, Killmonger, we got to stop. Like, I win. I beat you up. Like, will you listen to me? And then Killmonger was like, yeah, okay. And they were like, cool. How can we come to a solution? How can we compromise here and, like, uh, satisfy the, the people that you represent? Find middle, right? Like, that's never how it goes in Western storytelling. Um, but it doesn't have to be so that killing is how we solve stuff. Uh, and as soon as we break out of that, we get into a space where we then need to talk about the more messy work of resolution, uh, restitution, uh-huh. and reconciliation, which, you know, historically not something that Western society is super jammed about. Yeah, we kind of just want to be colonizers and pave over things. Um, so I actually found that when I watched that movie, I was kind of like, it felt like a bit of a sour note to me. I was just like, huh, yeah, like this was an opportunity to do something better. Um, and they elected to go with this kind of tired uh, strat. Like, there's like a brief moment where Chal is like, yo, we could, you know, like, I basically have magic in this building over here. I can, I stabbed with a thing. We can fix that. It's no problem. Like, I got shot in the spine, and we fixed it like that. It was no big deal. And Killmonger's just like, nah. <laughs> just yeah. dies. Um, which, you know, like, he, he goes out really well, but that is the only direction that Western media sees for a story to take is that if, if you do a bad thing, you have to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of fucked up. I would love to push an agenda that doesn't feature that kind of stuff yeah. uh, as much as possible. And so I'm trying to chip away at that. But the thing is, even if I only give people tools for doing nonviolent things, 
they're going to, one, look for ways to spin it into violence, and two, they're going to be frustrated that they can't do anything. Yeah, Because yeah. of what we are predisposed as an audience to see in fiction, and therefore what we will reflect back into games when we play them. And also, like, the general kind of tradition of role-playing games has just always been one of violence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's with words or other, or like, seduce or manipulate in Apocalypse World is violence. Let's not like mince words, mm-hmm. it is horrifying. <laughs> it's really nasty stuff. Uh, it's just like using leverage and manipulating and exploiting people. It's super gross. Yeah. And so I can't look at that and be like, cool, yeah, there's like a nonviolent solution because it's like Apocalypse World is just it's... steeped in violence. Everything mm-hmm. in it is violent. Um, which is rad. Like, I love Apocalypse World, don't get me wrong, and, like, I'm all for murdering people who shit heels uh, in games. Uh, not in real life. Not hard like that. But, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> but I would love for there to be more stories that we could tell. Yeah. And to at least give people an opportunity if they want to tell that story that there's some support for that. Yeah. So, I... that's my very long-winded answer to your question that involves spoiling Black Panther. I really do... Uh... <laughs> I really appreciate a game that that actually like encourages a nonviolent solution to things because I mean if you look at most of them, it, it's one of those okay you've got twelve different skills to determine how you shoot people to death or break them in half with your bare hands or like you know control their brain which seems like one of the skeeviest that's a uh, that's a common one yeah, yeah and it's really gross that's yeah. actually way grosser than most of the other things yeah but like. Most of them, it's like, oh, well, I guess you can roll to talk to them and see how that goes, maybe. There's not, like, a a support foundation for for nonviolent ways to solve things. And And so let's look at, let's look at, to go one step deeper, let's talk about Burning Wheel. Okay. Burning Wheel has dual of wits. Yep. And you might think, cool, this is a a compromise mechanic. That's, That's interesting. It's a game about talking to people to get to solve things. It is scaled and, okay, but... It is the most fucking masculine framing of what conversation is that, I, that I could mm-hmm. imagine. Um, mm-hmm. You basically beat people with your thought hammers, and they have uh-huh. to listen to you. Like, clearly, a white dude wrote this. Is all I can say. About it. It's just like it, it maps to a certain experience of what talking is, um, mm-hmm. and it and like nowhere in the game does it really talk about feelings, like emotions. Yeah, emotions aren't referenced anywhere in the Burning Wheel text that I can see. Um, at most we have beliefs which are a deeply like they might include an element of how you feel but they're this like very agency oriented like forward striking kind of Mm -hmm. mechanic and so there just isn't a lot in games that maps to like how anyone but men solve problems Uh and i think we we desperately need stuff that like on a fundamental level uh skews against that and changes that because that's just like it's okay to be a dude that's cool it's just that like everyone else has to also do that is what's fun uh-huh. right there's no there is no alternative presented and so that's what i want to see um and that's what i'm trying to work at developing but like i got a dec- i was raised a dude okay. i have a bunch of damage from that that i carry mm-hmm. with me and that i inject into the stuff that i make so I can't get away from it, and I'm trying. Um, I'm trying real hard to get away from it. It's really <laughs> difficult. 
Um, yeah. This is like a this is like a really big problem that the design space needs to acknowledge exists and then start tackling. And it's it's like really complicated and really deeply ingrained in how we look at the world and how we try to solve problems. Um, but it would be nice to give ourselves the language and the tools in the game and practice them. Because mm-hmm. like I I promise you that if there were a if there were like a mechanical encoding of nonviolent communication and de-escalation and like resolution strategies, um, and there was a game that was about that, people would retain that stuff because uh-huh. they would have all this incentive to want to learn it and this cool arena in which to practice. And practice is very, very important for any kind of social behavior. Uh, and mm-hmm. goodness knows we're not going to get opportunities to practice that in a lot of other places or certainly not low stakes ones. And we're not going to get trained on it by our, our yeah. families and parents generally. And we can't go back mm-hmm. in time and fix that. So <laughs> I would love to work on writing a game that's about that stuff. I, I have this vague notion for kind of my next big game, uh, which is going to be, it's going to be called hell's electorate. And it's going to be oh, about no. hell bureaucracies. Um... And it's, Basically, going to be my experiences in um, like anarchist workers' collectives and other like collective yeah. organizing structures, and all of my displeasure around that uh, expressed <laughs> inside of the game. It's going to be a very like bureaucratic, procedural like thing. I have this very like floaty idea of what I want it to be like. If you um, ever need playtesters, hello. <laughs> <laughs> but I like. But I think some people might be excited about it. It's kind of a weird yeah, notion, but like funny. having a game that's just like all about communication and trying to like get things to happen within this like bureaucratic space, I think would be really fun. Um, and to just again like get even more outside of the classic like you go and fight things kind of game, yeah, uh, is a goal of mine because there is that predisposition in me as a gamer to want to just, you know, like rehash that same shit. And it's like, God, it's easy to write those kinds of stories. It's mm-hmm. so easy. It's like, yeah. cool. Yeah. I hit it with a sword until it dies. And then I win. Mm-hmm. Nice. <laughs> Super clean. Easy. Nailed it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Like <laughs> everyone knows how to make that happen, but yeah. I would love to make a more muddy, uncomfortable, compromise laden, conditional success kind of mechanic and have that be what you got to push through and like actually make people talk to each other and actually make people listen to each other. Those are goals that I have. Yeah. We'll see if I ever get there as a designer. That's a challenge. I think your mic 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 might be cutting out a little bit again every now and then. Who me? Yeah, you. Damn. Well, I guess I just need to be louder. <laughs> that's right. I guess that's the right thing. Shit. Oh, shit. It's the it's it's obviously the only solution. So make it happen. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's actually really interesting as I hadn't thought about it that way. But you're absolutely right in that the duel of wits is basically just like it's not a, it's not a compromise mechanic. It's a social dominance mechanic. It is. It's it's a very particular framing, uh, and I had mm-hmm. this realization while playing. I was just like, the only strategies that this permits you are these like, like. I would feel like such a fucking asshole if I ever talked to someone like that. Uh, It's like, it's really grounded in rhetoric and like a very particular way of speaking that just feels so unnatural to me. Uh, Uh, When I come into that, I'm just like, cool. So there's no thing here where I ask them what their needs are 
and then mm-hmm. like state my own like there's a whole different way of talking to people that I have been taught to use as part of like some of my uh froofy anarchist social justice warrior bike shop life um and there's just like those those skills cannot be applied inside this framework mm-hmm. uh, and so i i tried to write some there's some stuff like that in my game the unlikely hero one of their gather info questions is what are what are this person's unmet needs you can just ask like oh. hey, what what do they really what like what's wrong with them basically like there's a move for that like because I think that kind of stuff is really important to just reframe people's thinking. And so mm-hmm. team design is a great opportunity for you to just be like, no, think this way. Here, like, you are only permitted these tools. Solve a problem now. Because people yeah. love solving problems, um, and the game constrains what they can do. So you can, you can be in control, mm-hmm. and you can just tell them, like, no, you have to use talking. You have to use asking questions to win this argument. Like, yeah. that would be cool. Welcome um, to I'm Box really of Hammers, games like that yeah and and it's why i roll my eyes at D a lot that's um, fair never never do that right here yeah, yeah we've we've <laughs> had some chafing um, it's it is a natural consequence i think while you were describing sort of the the typical way stuff gets implemented i was thinking about all the times over the my like life as a D player where people where i heard i would hear different people or different groups talk about, man, I wish there was some sort of social mechanic in D&D and then the thing that they wound up envisioning was always social combat. Like, you always yeah, wind like up like they have hit points there. and I beat them to death with mm-hmm. my wound. Which, yeah, like is a thin veneer of talking over right? yeah, so yeah, it's, it's, yeah. the way we envision dialogue is violent um, and so like a, a thing that I have done in my life is nonviolent communication training. Um, and it's, it was a very mind opening experience to just like rethink talking to people and to see, start seeing all the ways in which we are incredibly brutal in how uh-huh. we are taught to communicate with people yes. Um, yes, yes. and how little about communication most of what words we use are. They're mostly uh-huh. about just taking from people. Um, mm-hmm. And so the more weird shit you know, the more weird games you can design is where I'm going with this. Uh, and yes. I'm excited to get my chops and actually like be a designer and then design those things. That's I cool. would really love nothing more than to do that. That's very, very cool. Very, very cool.